Take your Bibles, open with me up first to 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. So we are continuing in our series, Defending Your Faith, Expository Apologetics, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for hope that is in you. This morning, we're looking at chapter 5 from Bodhi's book, Learning Apologetics Through Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms. This will be the first part. This is going to be a two-part lesson. Uh, we'll finish next week, Lord willing. But want to start with uh, two passages in 2 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 13, he tells Timothy, Hold to the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This, this hold fast, and in verse 14, he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you to hold on to and to guard. And then if you'll turn over to chapter 3, we always quote verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But if you'll look up and start in verse 13, uh, 2 Timothy, sorry. There, there, is a, there is a warning, 2 Timothy 3, 13, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived. But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's an important thing to be reminded of what we know and what we've been taught and who taught us. Uh, critical there to know. Paul, of course, is encouraging Timothy. Remember who taught you these things. And remember, it wasn't just Paul that taught Timothy. He pointed him back to his mother and his grandmother. Remember those who taught you the scriptures. So we're looking this morning at the role of creeds, confessions, and next week we'll finish up with confessions and catechisms, the role that they play in helping us define our apologetic and in learning what we need to learn about the word of God. Now, we've been looking at, Vody says, a broad view and a narrower view of apologetics. And that broad view is that our apologetic is the vindication of the Christian worldview against all others. It's us in the way we live, in the conversations that we have, demonstrating the reality of the Christian worldview. And several have made the point that you, the atheist has no grounds to argue back at all without depending on a biblical worldview. Uh, because even an atheist is going to try to say that something is moral or not moral. Well, how do you determine what's moral and not? You have to have a standard. The narrower view that we've been looking at is to know what we believe, why we believe it, and then being able to communicate that to others in an effective, winsome manner. Sometimes it is easy to know what you believe, and it's difficult to communicate that clearly and winsomely. And part of the problem is, is, is that we learn the truth, we enter that cage stage, and we want to convince everybody of the truth, and instead of compassionately engaging them, we beat them with our Bibles and try to beat them into submission with our words and the way we approach them. So we need to be able to communicate what we believe in an effective, winsome manner. Also, Vody makes a great point in the, on the first page of this chapter. He says, remember that we don't have to give an account for things that we don't believe. If somebody asks you a question, and his, his example from Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, if somebody asks you a question that's rooted in something that's not true, you don't have to answer that. You don't have to give an account for what you don't believe. The scripture says, give an account for the reason that you have hope. So if somebody presents an error, you don't have to tear the error down. You just need to present what you believe, what the truth is from scripture. We don't have to give an account for what we don't believe. We're only responsible for giving a reason for the hope that's in us, not the hope that's in others. We are also not responsible for knowing things that God has not revealed. 
Now, when you get into it, especially if you're into a lot of theological debates, especially debating those that I refer to as uh, internet or keyboard theologians, those who know it all but couldn't live it out to save their lives, literally, they know every answer and they like to argue and they like to fight. Well, the reality is there are things that God has not revealed to us. He has not told us everything. We don't know it all. We will never know it all. We are not responsible for debating the things that God has not revealed. There are sometimes, Spurgeon did this, when we understand that there is such a thing as divine sovereignty and there is such a thing as human responsibility, Spurgeon said, quit trying to divorce them. They work together. Why? Because this is how God planned it. Can we explain that? No. So don't try. Because if you try, you get into the area of speculation. And then you're just making stuff up as the best you can figure it out. And we don't need to tell people the best we can figure out. We need to tell people what God's word actually says. And here's the reality. God's word tells us enough that we don't need to spend time on the stuff he doesn't tell us. I've actually, I actually heard a preacher one time say, sometimes you just have to realize that where there's gaps in the Bible, we just need to try to fill those in. No, if it's a gap, it's there for a reason. When, 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 when the Lord through Gabriel told Daniel about the end times, it shook Daniel to his core and made him sick. And what was he told? Don't tell anybody. Seal it up. Now, can you believe that people have actually preached sermons on what Gabriel probably told Daniel? It doesn't tell us. He said, don't tell anybody. Don't speculate. He hasn't told us everything. Let's focus on what he has told us. Our hope then has to be centered on what we know and what has been revealed. And what has been revealed is the gospel of Christ, the truth about who he is and what he's come to do. Again, Paul wrote to Timothy, hold to the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. There's faith and love, both acting here. We're to be in the faith, trusting what God has said, and we're to do that out of a motive of a love for God and for his word. If you love God, you're going to love his word. If you love his word, you're going to love him. If you don't love God's word, you don't love God, because this is God's word, and it's his self-revelation of himself to us. We have to remember that the gospel has not changed, and, and it's, it's very doubtful that anybody's going to raise a new objection to the gospel. The reality is people bring up objections today, and the only reason they sound new is because we're not familiar with church history, because we haven't read the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms and the early church fathers, because we don't know what that history is and what's come before us. We think it's all new to us. No, people are still asking the same questions today that they asked of Jesus and the apostles. Paul answers them. Jesus answers them. The disciples answer them. It's the same questions over and over and over again. That means that to be effective, we just need to be familiar with a few concepts and a few texts of scripture. We don't have to know it all. When most Christians, Vody writes, when most Christians think apologetics training, they think philosophy, logic, and debate. However, the key tools for training the expository apologist are creeds, confessions, and catechisms. These are what has been laid down through us throughout the history of the church that the Orthodox Church, not the Greek Orthodox, not the Russian Orthodox, but the sound church, churches that are believing the true gospel, they've held to the same doctrines throughout the history of the church without wavering. The creeds were the earliest apologetics. The ancient creeds of the church and the confessions of faith serve the purpose of being statements of belief. People wanted to know what the church believed and people in the church needed to know what to believe. And so the creeds formalized that. 
They put it in a short statement that was easy to remember that summarized points of belief. Oftentimes, in fact, they were written by early believers in response to specific heresies, to specific false teachers, and to error. I, I always enjoy, I probably shouldn't, I enjoy engaging people who are anti-Calvinistic. You shouldn't follow a man. Well, then you shouldn't follow Jesus. He was a man. There are men and teachers that God has given the church. And people say, well, Calvin came up with this. No, Calvin didn't. Well, Augustine came up with this. No, he didn't. God came up with this. And by the way, if we're going to be technical about it, you understand that Calvin didn't pop Calvinism out and say, this is what we all need to believe. The five points were written in response to Arminius and his heresies, to his errors. It was a correction. That's how the creeds and the confessions work. It is a correction. And this is what Paul did in his writings in the New Testament, wasn't it? There was an error, a false teaching, something that had happened in the church that needed to be corrected. And so Paul would address it. He would correct it. And then he would show the application that should flow from it if we're believing the truth, sound doctrine. So these early creeds and confessions were written in response to heretics, false teachers, and error that was creeping into the church. They were there to help summarize the gospel in a way that was easy to remember. The three that we're going to look at, three creeds that we're going to look at this morning are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. I had thought about including the uh, Creed of Chalcedon. Uh, he didn't in his book, so that's going to be next week. We'll cover the Chalcedonian Creed. But looking at these three, these are the most basic, the first of the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, and you know there are churches still today that recite this as part of their liturgy in their worship. It's memorized and they know it. Now, this is a, an updated version because there's some confusion about some of the language that was used in the ancient creeds that did lead to error. That's the danger of writing creeds and confessions. If you get something wrong or if you get something confusing in your creed or your confession, it has to be explained and it has to be dealt with. When we look at the Apostles' Creed, it's simply the statement, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead and on the third day rose again. Now, the phrase there early on was, he descended into hell. Now, the understanding of the writers of the creed was not that Jesus went to hell like Joyce Meyer teaches and had to fight the devil and wrestle the keys out of his hand so he could set people free. Jesus did not go to hell. He went through the judgment and the wrath of God on the cross. And what did he say to the thief on the cross next to him? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't have to make a pit stop to fight the devil. The devil was defeated at the cross. When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, there was nothing else for him to go and do. So the confusion comes from the fact that what that phrase meant was that Jesus descended into the grave. He was buried. He went to Hades, the place of the dead, meaning he literally died. Jesus died. Now that was written actually in response to other heresies that Jesus didn't die. He just fainted that it wasn't Jesus on the cross. It was somebody who looked like him that Jesus actually got off the cross before he was dead and was even after they buried him, he, he had some a couple of days there to revive and was able to roll the stone away and crawl out of the. No, he died on the cross. Now, if we look at this, how much doctrine did we just summarize in those Three or four sentences. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, immediately, everybody throws on their brakes. We don't believe in the Catholic Church. Well, the Catholic Church exists whether you believe it or not. But this is C, little c, Catholic. And what does the word Catholic mean? Universal. To speak of the Catholic, little c, not the Roman Catholic Church, is to speak of all of those who have trusted in Christ, all of the elect from all time, that will one, at one day finally be gathered before the throne of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That is, as a creed, the summary of the gospel that we preach. It starts with the beginning. It defines the character and the nature and the attributes of God, of Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, it was not extensive. It's not huge. It's not hard to memorize. It's not long. And so people were concerned because it left some things out. Well, it was not meant to cover everything. This is basic. I, I'll be honest. I wish most people in most evangelical churches today could grasp the doctrine just in that creed. Most of the controversies in the evangelical church would be cured if they just believed what the Bible says about these few things. It's really that simple. So the Apostles' Creed, it is a summary of the gospel we preach. Paul summarized it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how it was accomplished. Now, this creed is historic. It was written just about 300 years after the time of Christ. It's easy to memorize. And again, many churches still do today, even quote, quote it in their liturgy. And it's widely and easily available for people to find out and to read. If we could just explain those few statements, what I like to do at times, people who have questions take them through the Apostles' Creed, and then take them to the verses that support what the Creed says, the verses that the Creed is based on. I would encourage you to do that without cheating. Don't look it up. Figure it out. Get in your concordance and figure out what verses can we use to defend each of these points of belief. And then as you go through the Creed, especially with new believers, you can take this as a blueprint for teaching sound doctrinal truth on a very basic level. The next is the Nicene Creed. It was written in AD 325, revised in 381, and it was written to address the heresy of Arianism, which teaches that Jesus is not divine, but that Jesus was a created being, created by God. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a modern cult that still hold to this heresy. So this was creeping in. The church needed to deal with it. They called a church council, and this was the creed that they produced. And it takes the Apostles' Creed and goes a step deeper to defend the divinity of Christ. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Now you'll remember, here is the confusion. It is the use of the word begotten. Language evolves, language changes, language can have different meanings. And what do you have to understand to understand language? Context. What is the context that's being used? Because as I've said before, we go through some of these Old Testament books 
and so and so we got so and so and so and so we got so and so and it's all about begetting and so we think well jesus was begotten so god created him no the begotten here as it references to christ is the word as its meaning at its most basic meaning means that jesus is unique there's nobody else like him outside of the father and the spirit right same essence three persons one god and here the defense of christ is that he is the only son of God, begotten from the father before all ages, meaning he is eternal because he is God. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made of the same essence as the father. Through him, all things were made. Now, just if you just make a list of the, the, of the references of scripture, just in that first paragraph, you've got a page of verses that all of this is explaining. It goes on for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the worlds to come. Amen. Again, what's amazing to me with these creeds, that, that creed, that Nicene creed, has more doctrinal meat on its bones than most churches' statement of what they believe online. I, you, if, if people are always looking, they're, they're contacting us, we're looking for a church in our area, we're looking for a sound church, and you go to the church website and you click what we believe. And sometimes you just, you wish you had some whiteout to put on the screen. Y'all remember what whiteout is? Just, just cover it up. Just stop it. What you're basically telling me is you don't believe anything, you don't know what you believe, or you don't want to tell me what you believe. And you're just hoping that you can lure me into coming and getting caught up in the environment of your church and the culture of your church. We need to be clear about what we believe. Early on when our church changed our church name, when we planted, we planted as Maranatha Community Church. That sounds neither Baptist nor Reformed. And sure enough, people would show up and they would ask where the band was and where the worship team was. And the, the number one question we got asked was, oh, we thought you were a vineyard church. No, no. And then we found out, by the way, that there was a whole cult ministry on college campuses called Maranatha Ministries that is a legitimate cult. So now we're changing our name. OK, so let's pray about it. What are we changing the name to? Providence Reformed Baptist Church. Why? Because when people find us, there is no doubt what we believe, who we are and what we're going to preach. That's what we're going to stand on. We're going to be clear. Hopefully you're not going to be mistaken. And then you meet people who say Providence, I get what's a Reformed Baptist. Is that somebody who used to be a Methodist? No, no, no. I've been asked that. I've been asked that. So it gives us an opportunity to define what we believe. That's what the creeds do. Words mean things. And these creeds take these doctrines and condense them and present them in a way that's easy to remember. This creed, the Nicene Creed, addressed old heresies. Heresies that are still being propagated today. Remember, Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, th this is something I try to teach, especially young men who I know who are preparing for ministry, who are in seminary, who are early in their ministries. I want to encourage them. Talk to older pastors. 
men who have been on the battlefield for a long time, because what you're going to learn is there is nothing new under the sun. And you're going to you're going to encounter things and controversies and situations that you think are new and unique. And they're not. The church has been there before. And we need to go back into history and see how that was dealt with. And that, then, then it's not that difficult. Then there's really not that much homework to do. We dig into what the scripture says and we address the issues. These are basic truths that have to be taught. They have to be understood by believers if we're to grow in grace and if we're to grow in understanding. This And, and what's sad, I talk about the meat of the creed. This is really the milk. This is the milk. These are the basics. These are things that every new believer should be learning and should be taught right away. These things out of the word prepare us to move on to the meat and to the things that might not be as clear as these things are. But these are the things that are clear. And the next creed we'll look at this morning is the Athanasian Creed, Athanasius. Uh, he, it was written in response to the heresy of Sabellianism, otherwise known today as modalism, oneness Pentecostalism. It's a serious misunderstanding of the nature of God. It denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Athanasius, by the way, was an early church father from Alexandria, Egypt. His enemies labeled him the black dwarf because of his short stature and his dark skin. And they thought that was a put down and it just encouraged him to fight that much harder. Athanasius, in fact, was the mind behind most of the Nicene Creed. And so when it came time to fight against these errors when it came to the Trinity, we're taking it one step further. Now, you see the progression that that Apostles' Creed starts with the basics. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, what Jesus came to accomplish. The Nicene Creed then had to deal with those who said that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that, or that Jesus was not divine. And so it defends for us who Christ is. Now we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. And as we get here, uh, we looked at, in fact, Athanasius was a deacon under Bishop Alexander, who led the Council of Nicaea, and he succeeded him in 328. He served 45 years there as the bishop in Alexandria, Egypt. During that time, he was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors. He refused to reinstate Arius, who was a bishop from Libya, because he taught that Jesus was a created being and not eternal. He taught and defended the truth that God is one essence with three persons, and he defended Trinitarian theology against Arianism, including the idea that the Holy Spirit was not eternal, but created out of nothing by the Father and the Son. You see, all of these heresies deny the nature of God. And they will either say that Jesus wasn't divine, Jesus was created, or the Holy Spirit was not a third person of the Trinity, but was just a created force or a created essence created by the Father and the Son. Athanasius created a list of 27 books that he put together that he thought should be included in the New Testament. And his writings on the life of Antony, who was one of the first monks, actually influenced Augustine in his conversion. His defense in this creed, this is fundamental doctrine when it comes to what we believe about the Trinity. The creed says, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Again not Roman Catholic, the truth, the universal truth about who Christ is. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence. Now, are your eyes already glazing over? <laughs> what? Huh? 
he got deep really quickly. So we have God, who is one God, one essence, but a trinity. But in that trinity is unity. There is not a blending of the persons. That means the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There are three persons, but each of those is the one God. Is your mind confused yet? That's good. You're probably depending on math. This is beyond our ability to understand. Why? Because we can't fully comprehend the nature of God. If we could, he wouldn't be God. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, not blending the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. Do you know how many cults we just wiped out with that one sentence? Just that one sentence. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. You think, why does he keep repeating these things? You would think that we'd understand this. No, no, we don't. It has to be repeated. Why? Because this is where the cults get off. They change something about the fundamental attributes of who God is. And then we read it, yet there are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being. So, too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. I will let you read John Owen on what all of that one paragraph means. And what he wrote on that is thousands upon thousands of words to get to an understanding or to try to get to an understanding of who the, the Holy Spirit is, who Christ is, who God is as persons within this one being. Accordingly, there is one father, not three fathers. There is one son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. Now, I want you to understand, without getting too deep into it, there is a whole controversy raging in the Reformed world right now about the subordination of the Son to the Father. The fact is that the Son subjected himself to the Father in the Incarnation to come and to be the Savior of mankind. And the debate is, was Jesus always subordinate to the Father? No. That happened, Philippians 2 tells us, in the incarnation, when he humbled himself, when he emptied himself and became obedient to the Father. That was part of the plan of redemption. We can't go back and say that they are equal and co-equal, and yet the whole time God was the big boss and Jesus and the Spirit just did whatever God the big boss wanted. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of the essence of God. Again, nothing in this trinity. And see, this was answered. 
This was answered 1,700 years ago. This was answered. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller in their entirety. The three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity, but it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now, this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's son, is both God and human equally. R.C. Sproul defined this, Jesus is truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man, all at the same time. And that's where we get into Chalcedon. Chalcedonian Creed defends that and defines that in one short paragraph, blows the cults away. We'll get there next week. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Now, some of the cults that this deal with also to the person of Christ, there were those who would say that Christ was just a man who was born, and then the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, and he became the Messiah. But then the Spirit left just before he died on the cross because God can't die. And so it was just this poor man that the Holy Spirit said, I want you, but not all the time. And so he did the ministry and then the spirit left and this man died on the cross. There are others that say that they took a man who looked like Jesus and it was a mistaken identity. Do you really think a man with mistaken identity that was about to be executed in the most horrible way known to man wouldn't fight it? He would have started a GoFundMe and a Facebook petition right away. But what did Jesus do? He went silently before his accusers. Why? Because he knew the father's plan. He was there in obedience to carry out the father's plan. It defeats all of these misconceptions, all of these errors that are taught. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. And again, that's defended and defined even more in, in Chalcedon, that he is God in his nature, but he also has a human nature. One person with two natures, and we'll defend and define that next week. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. His divinity and his humanity are not blended. Otherwise, he would not be fully divine or fully human. He is fully divine and fully human in the same person, in one person. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an account of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Bodhi says of this, here we have a clear creedal history demonstrating the commitment of Christians throughout the ages who believed that the Trinity not only could be defined and explained, but that it must be. This is the God in whom we believe. And to change that essence is to make a different God. Confessions of faith, in addition to the creeds then, flowed out of the Protestant Reformation to demonstrate the differences between the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches. From these creeds early on in the church history, then during the time of the Reformation, we started seeing more full, more fleshed out confessions that were being written. 
to address errors and to promote the truth. The, one of the first of these was 1530, the Augsburg Confession, written by Martin Luther's disciple Philip Melanchthon, contains 28 articles of faith. It has been amended a few times, and it is still the confession of the Lutheran Church, of most Lutheran churches. The three Reformed confessions that we would be concerned with beyond Augsburg include the Belgic Confession of Faith in 1561, the 39 Articles in 1563, and the Canons of Dort in 1619. Not the Canons of Dork, as I was told that that used to be. That was somebody was pulling my leg when I was learning all of these things and didn't have a clue. Oh, you probably read the Canons of Dork. <laughs> yes, I'm a dorky theologian, but it's the Canons of Dort. And if you don't know what the Canons of Dort are, there, you have your homework. Go look it up. Go read the Canons of Dort. Good luck with that. Let me know what questions you might have. We also have the first London Baptist Confession, written in 1644, edited in 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith, also in 1646, and the second London Baptist Confession, written in 1677 and edited in 1689. Our church has, as its confessions of faith, the 1646 First London Baptist and the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, as amended by Charles Spurgeon. So these aren't necessarily all set in stone. There's room for improvement because these are all man-made documents. They do not substitute for the word of God. They simply summarize the word of God for us in helpful, helpful ways. Many in reform circles today like to stress the differences between our churches. Now, what's amazing is when we, when we had prayed and really felt that God was leading us to, to replant, to transition our church from Round Rock out here to Marble Falls, we were looking to see where is there another Reformed church, conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Reformed church. And you have to go an hour almost in any direction to find another one. So that's why we wanted to be here. Because there are those who stress the differences. We want to stress the levels of agreement. What is it that we agree on when it comes to matters of the faith? And these confessions prove for us a testament to the history and legacy that we share in what we do understand about the gospel and about the word of God. These creeds and confessions serve three purposes. Confessions of faith serve to unite believers with their historical roots, to know this is what people have believed for hundreds and thousands of years. Confessions serve to clarify the distinct beliefs of various groups. It's okay that we might not all agree on everything. If everybody agrees on everything, it's probably a cult. There's going to be disagreement because we're human, so we need to know what is it that we believe, where do we disagree? Third, confession serves as a standard and a starting point for disciple-making. Spurgeon wrote as an introduction to his amendment to the 1689 Second London Confession, this ancient document is the most excellent epitome of the things most surely believed among us. It is not issued as an authoritative rule or code of faith whereby you may be fettered, but as a means of edification and righteousness. It is an excellent, though not inspired, expression of the teaching of those holy scriptures by which all confessions are to be measured. We hold to the humbling truths of God's sovereign grace and the salvation of lost sinners. Salvation is through Christ alone and by faith alone. What's encouraging to me to be a Reformed church with not that many close to us is to know that we have at times had Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists all worshiping together. Now, the reality is if you take the Second London Confession, and you take the Westminster Confession, 
There are a lot of those chapters that read word for word exactly the same. Why? Because the Baptist brothers said, you think we're Anabaptist and we're not them. They're a radical group. Let us tell you how much we agree with. And let us tell you, by the way, where you're wrong. And there was that debate on a few of those crucial things that Presbyterians and Baptists will disagree on. But at the heart of the matter, the majority of the faith that we confess and believe is the same. It's the same. And that's why we have unity and can have unity with people from multiple different backgrounds in one church. Because we are worshiping the same God, bowing to the same Christ, filled with the same Holy Spirit, preaching the same word. And again, while we might disagree on a few things, the things we disagree on aren't essential to the truths of the gospel. These confessions and creeds give us what is essential, what must be believed. Now, that's a scary statement when you realize if you take that Athanasian creed and Athanasius said, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. How many people in the church today who claim to be a Christian could not articulate half or 10 percent of what is taught in the Athanasian creed? Because we're not being taught the word of God in too many churches. We're being taught how to have a better job, how to have a better bank account, how to have a better marriage. We're being taught all of these things that aren't the word of God. So these serve us apologetically because they give us a foundation so that we might know what we believe. In fact, in fact, Vody says our confessions answer the question, what do you mean when you say you believe the Bible? Somebody ever ask you the question, you better get ready to unload on them. What do you mean you believe the Bible? Let me tell you what I mean and share these creeds and share these confessions. Next week, we'll look at the Chalcedonian Creed in specific, and we will look at various catechisms and their role in memorizing and in learning truths from scripture. For this week, please understand, if you have not been exposed to the creeds and confessions, dig in. These things are critical for the understanding of the church to see our history and to see where we've come from, to show us that what we are preaching is in line with the historic faith going back all the way to the beginning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning, for the things that we are to guard and to hold fast to, the things that have been passed down to us by those who have come before us. We thank you that there is nothing new under the sun. There is no new heresy. It's all the same, an attack on your character, on your person, on what Christ has come to be and to do, on who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is in our lives. Father, I pray that as we study these creeds and confessions, and we study the word that backs these things up, that we would be drawn to know you better and walk with you more closely. We thank you for these tools that have been given to us in the church to help us and to guide us. And we thank you especially for your word, perfect, inspired, infallible, active and alive and unable to be bound or stopped. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in its pages. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.